and welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm by myself today because I was very keen to record this episode and Bailey unfortunately hasn't watched the source material um, and so I don't want to spoil it for her by by going through it all. Um, But I really wanted to get this topic out there in the world and so I'm going to do a solo episode today. And my topic is that the John Wick movie franchise represents a near future continuation of the Wire universe. That is my fan theory. I've been thinking about this for over a year and have really wanted to talk about it. Um, I think that there is so much to unpack in both The Wire and John Wick around this topic. And so heads up. Spoilers for all of The Wire, obviously, but also spoilers for all three John Wick movies, uh, John Wick 1, 2, and 3, Parabellum, and uh, if you haven't watched those yet, I encourage you to stop listening, go watch those three movies, and then come back and, and listen to this episode, and I would love to hear your thoughts after you've had a chance to compare the two. My fan theory about John Wick representing a near-future version of The Wire taken to The Wire's most logical extremes has been something I've sort of muddled over ever since watching the John Wick movies in December of 2020. And I've gone back and I've re-watched the movies and of course I re-watched The Wire all the time. And I really think that the evidence or the invitation to compare the two gets stronger and stronger the more that I watch these two franchises. So there's a lot to kind of bring into this conversation. And I'll, I'll go about explaining my fan theory by sort of following the process that I followed as I was watching and comparing the two. Uh, the first invitation to comparison and analysis being that both The Wire and the John Wick franchise of course are examining this idea of a vast, powerful, and largely like without consequence criminal underworld that encompasses so many institutions that are public facing and perhaps the level of interconnectedness between crime and um, so-called benign operations is much more than perhaps a civilian would realize. So just to start thinking about this, the first John Wick movie, much like The Wire, brings up a theme of the individual versus the institution. And in in both franchises, we see the action or the plot getting started by one player going rogue and uh, performing a transgression that puts their organization at risk. And that player is swiftly punished from within their own ranks. So we see this with uh, D'Angelo and getting moved to the low rises when he used to have the towers. We see this with uh, McNulty after speaking to the judge is uh, quickly detailed. And then Yosef, who um, 
very sadly kills the, the puppy of John Wick and steals his car, is then um, punished from his own faction, which also is his own family for that matter. We see an immediate theme of unspoken or perhaps unrecognized, unacknowledged power. Um, Yosef calls John Wick a fucking nobody uh, at the start of the first John Wick movie, much the same as the police, um, Rawls, Kima, and others, refer to Avon Barksdale as like, uh, never heard the name. I think Kima's the one who says, it sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me and not really recognizing uh, the skill of that adversary. But both Barksdale and John Wick, at the time of those infractions, are arguably the most skilled in their particular field of the game. Um, I also think that the idea of the game is huge in both John Wick and The Wire. It's not referred to as explicitly uh, in game terminology in the John Wick franchise, but my argument here is, and my sort of fan theory that I'm leading to, is that by the time John Wick is taking place, which I argue is the near future continuation of the Wire universe, the game is so ingrained that the terminology has become elevated, the processes have become more polished, and we tend to see um, more strictly visual cues. Um, and we'll get into that as well. I also think that there are major visual similarities um, and thematic visuals between The Wire and the John Wick franchise. The idea of um, false fronts or inner sanctums, uh, subterranean spaces for um, some of the uh, dealings of all the players. We see a lot of basements in both. We see a lot of um, tunnels, gates, a lot of barriers such as um, bars and retractable gates many instances of reflection. Bailey and I have talked about reflection cues in The Wire on our podcast before. There's a lot of it in John Wick as well. Um, we see reflections in still water. We see reflections in mirrors. We see reflections in glass in much the same way as takes place in The, wa the Wire. And there are a lot of instances of cataloging, archiving, um, almost what looks like administrative labor in both, um, but it's kind of this idea of searching, indexing, archiving, um, and uh, an overarching theme of a, a taxonomy, which manifests in both. And uh, I'll expand on that shortly. And then uh, finally, there's a lot of dialogue that not just thematically um, echoes the wire, but to the level of the words themselves, we get a lot of variants of famous uh, quotes from the wire that are manipulated ever so slightly and said in uh, extremely similar context within the John Wick franchise. Uh, just one of those is that in the first John Wick movie, 
around the one hour and 24 minute mark, we hear Winston say, we live by a code. And of course we know that Omar in The Wire season one, episode seven says a man must have a code. That's just one example of, of dialogue uh, repetition and, and I'll bring up some more shortly. There are also uh, similarities around familial ties, uh, specifically with uncles and nephews being a recurring trope. So in The Wire, we have Frank Sabatka and his nephew Nick. We have Avon Barksdale and his nephew D'Angelo. We have Prop Joe and his nephew Cheese. And then in John Wick, we, we start out with Abram and his nephew Yosef. And in all of those um, four sets of uncle-nephew relationships, there's some kind of transgression by the nephew which has to be managed or um, solved by the uncle. Um, and so I found that really quite fascinating as well. The idea of street mythology and reputation is also really strong in both The Wire and John Wick. Um, one comparison being at the start of John Wick 2, the way that John Wick's name kind of rings out at the start um, because of his, uh, because of the bounty on John Wick and the level of reputation that he has for his skills and for his ability to kind of conquer any circumstances that he faces within the game. I would argue is extremely similar to the way that Omar's name rings out in the street and, and Omar has a sort of reputation among uh, everyone in, in the criminal network. Um, so that's kind of the basis for why I started thinking about uh, this comparison and why I wanted to look even more closely at some of the similarities that uh, I think tie the two universes together. Um, so that's sort of the surface level evidence and I'm gonna go now into a few very specific instances. And the first would be in the first John Wick movie. We know that in The Wire there are connections between the various institutions legal and uh, either legal adjacent or illegal. So the way that corruption has kind of seeped into the uh, political game, into the law enforcement game, and uh, the idea of informants kind of working both sides. Uh, that is very true to reality, I think, in The Wire. My argument being that John Wick represents a near future version of the Wire universe in which the Wire's uh, themes are taken to their logical extreme, I would say that the interconnectedness between the so-called law enforcement and the so-called criminal enterprise has become so ingrained that it's become indistinguishable by the time that John Wick is taking place. So for instance, in the first John Wick movie, this is around the 31 minute mark, and I'll put timestamps in our show notes for those that really wanna go back and, and watch all of this, but around the 31 minute mark of the John Wick movie, uh, John Wick is handling the assassins who have infiltrated his home, and there's a big 
uh, scuffle going on and we see the first responders, police and paramedics, coming up to John Wick's house and there's very little dialogic exchange between John Wick and the law enforcement. It's almost an unspoken understanding of what's going on and uh, this unspoken understanding that John Wick is back, John Wick is kind of back to work, work being uh, part of the criminal network. And I would say that the unspoken nature of it goes to show that the connections between the two factions are not even really needing exposition anymore. The viewer is meant to just take it as a given um, or sort of infer that the the distinctions between the two are completely blurred, completely gone. And that's the level to which in the John Wick universe, the uh, corrupted dealings have manifested. I think we also see the way that the criminal or sort of criminal operations towards the end of the wire have become completely polished, perfected, honed and ingrained in the way that the uh, the bodies are dealt with. So when John Wick, this is around 34 minutes, has to call for the waste disposal company to come and, and get the bodies out of his house, the waste disposal tactics are the logical extreme of the way Chris Partlow and Snoop were uh, disposing bodies in the Bacons down to the level of using tarps and using chemicals. So imagine that um, the, for the most part, uh, pretty successful approach of Chris and Snoop has now been elevated and formalized or, or codified in a way in the John Wick universe that it is um, sanctioned by the criminal network itself. We also have this idea in both franchises about make-believe money or um, a sort of false currency as a signifier of being a participant in the game. In season one, episode one of The Wire, we see Bubbles using the photocopied money. He dips it in coffee. And that's an empty signifier. It, it's not actually worth anything, but it signifies a worth in the same way that Monopoly money signifies a worth. John Wick, I would say, pushes that idea even further to where the game itself doesn't use any real money. So they're instead um, have a, a version in of itself of a monopoly money by using tokens and coins. And in fact, within the John Wick criminal network, you can't participate unless you have one of the tokens or one of the coins as a signifier of a business transaction. So it kind of takes this gaming concept to a logical extreme in the way that to play or to be a player in the game, i.e. The, the crime world, you need to provide a token much like putting a token into an arcade machine. Um, and so I sort of see that as a visual or, or thematic representation of how formalized and how codified the game has become in this near future 
wire universe that I think John Wick represents. There's also a lot of uh, sophistication and formalization around the idea of false fronts. So the, um, the Continental Hotel in John Wick, which is the sanctioned grounds of the criminal proceedings, has a false front nightclub, the Red Circle. And it's kind of like an elevated or a more polished version of Orlando's in season one of The Wire, where there's an ostensible, legitimate business operating really as um, a sort of a sandbox for the, the crime proceedings to take place. And I think by the time John Wick is taking place in this idea of a near future wire universe, it's been that much more um, polished, perfected. Uh, clearly there's been money invested into the operation almost in a similar fashion to the way that Orlando and, and Avon and others have to keep Orlando's operating to a certain extent. Um, okay, so those are some of the ways that John Wick franchise represents an extension of the rules of the Wire universe towards, um, towards the end of the Wire when we see the way that the game is operating and especially seasons uh, four and five, but really throughout. I also think that the um, dialogue is really, really important because we hear some variations of nearly exactly the dialogue from The Wire. So everybody remembers um, the scene where D'Angelo is teaching Bodie and Wallace how to play chess. Uh, high on the list of probably greatest scenes of the entire Wire series, um, one of our favorites certainly. D'Angelo tells Bodie and Wallace, the king, stay the king. Everybody stays who he is. In John Wick Parabellum, so that's the third John Wick movie, we hear a very similar instance of that, which is when the Bowery King, uh, played by um, Lawrence Fishburne, says, long live the king. And although it might sound like a coincidence and kind of just two examples of an aphorism of Long Live the King, what I would draw attention to is the conspicuous chess set uh, from John Wake Parabellum, the third movie. There is a very foregrounded and very uh, clearly intentionally placed chess set around the time that the Bowery King is saying these lines, Long Live the King, uh, which I would say is an echo of the King Stay the King. And I think the chess set is especially notable because it has a sort of modern, futuristic feel to it. Um, the shapes of the pieces aren't really traditional in, in any way, which I think sort of reinforces this idea that John Wick is a near future um, universe and, and I think a near future manifestation of this chess set analogy of the king stay the king i'm going to return to the bowery king um in a little bit but just uh sort of think about that for now 
there's also the ending of the Parabellum movie where the Bowery King says, you cut a king, you better cut him to the quick, which obviously is extremely similar to Omar's line, come at the king, you best not miss. So I don't think any of that is a coincidence. I think it really invites um, a, a comparison between the two and to see the connective tissue between the dialogue and the uh, styling of The Wire and the way the John Wick franchise elevates, futurizes, and kind of polishes it to um, a more ingrained level. And the next piece that I will talk about is the way we get some familiar faces. And I think the familiar faces, it could be argued that they are continuations of their characters or at least archetypes in The Wire. So this was what really got me thinking about this topic from the start, was that we have Lance Reddick and Clark Peters, both actors from The Wire, appearing in the John Wick franchise um, for Clark Peters, just the first movie, but then uh, Lance Reddick a little bit longer. And in The Wire, Lance Reddick, who is Lieutenant Daniels, Clark Peters, who is uh, Detective Freeman, both of those characters are natural police, and we know that they're skilled, and we know that they're good at their jobs. However, we see in The Wire the way that they are punished for going against the brass and kind of acting as individuals up against an institution. So we see, Lance, I'll, I'll just call him Daniels rather than the actor's name, but Lieutenant Daniels gets sent to evidence control at the end of season one and we see that at the start of season two so he's put in the basement and that is a space for that kind of archiving cataloging taxonomy filing and administrative labor that i alluded to that we also see in john wick lester freeman meanwhile is sent to pawn unit, which again has a lot of administrative labor, filling out the index card. If we have a card on that item, we do. If we don't, we don't. And it's a, a paperwork job, essentially, and uh, Freeman was sent there for, for going against the brass in some manner. We, it's never really uh, totally articulated. Both of those, I would say, represent um, the police being put in a confined space um, and subject to this uh, filing paperwork responsibility, which is really obviously not what they want to be doing, but they broke the rules and so that's how they end up there. So my argument in my fan theory here John Wick represents a near-future continuation of The Wire to its most logical extremes. I'll say that Charon, Charon, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, Charon, the concierge of the Continental Hotel, is still Daniels, or is an iteration of Daniels, sent to work at the Continental as punishment for a future transgression within The Wire universe. And I'm making that argument because, first of all, notice how he is very concerned 
with hotel guests abiding by the Continental's rules. Um, he makes sure to explicitly state the rules. He won't uh, let the dog board at the Continental, but, I mean, he does take in John Wick's dog on his own. And then, uh, likewise, Harry, who is the Clark Peters um, character in John Wick, is also very concerned about abiding by the Continental's rules. He reiterates that um, assassination attempts cannot take place on the grounds of the Continental Hotel. And when the female assassin, whose name I don't remember, when the female assassin is subdued by John Wick, John Wick asks Harry to essentially watch over the female assassin and catch and release style kind of let her go about her business but what he's really doing is is babysitting Judy and I find that really fascinating because in The Wire season one Freeman is essentially charged with babysitting duty of Presbyluski so in much the same fashion that Presbyluski breaks the rules by cold cocking the kid and he has to be pulled off the street we see the female assassin breaking the rules and Harry has to watch over her in, in sort of babysitting fashion. And I think that that's similar to the way that just like Daniels was put in evidence control and, and we see this really uh, clear shot of him behind a partition when I think it's Bunk and, and McNulty go to see him or maybe it's Bunk and Freeman, I don't remember, but when they go see Daniels in the basement in the first episode of, of The Wire season two, there's a real visual echo of uh, what Daniels is doing behind that partition, um, you know, with, with uh, all of this storage behind him and the way that we are introduced to Caron in the Continental Hotel down to the level that when John Wick enters the Continental, there's a shot of a sort of gate or partition, um, like a metal partition opening up uh, in the same way that the the gate of evidence control has to be opened up and we we see those characters behind uh those partitions in john wick at the continental i believe it's meant to indicate um one of those old time elevator gates but i i think it's well worth acknowledging that the visual cues in both of those franchises are eerily similar and to go one step further, both Caron, who is the Lieutenant Daniels of the John Wick, and Harry, who is the Lester Freeman of John Wick, are dressed in eerily similar styles to their wire counterparts. So with Caron, who is Daniels, we see this sort of polished, somber suit and tie. And with Harry, aka Freeman, we get this tweed vest sort of professorial look um and i i find that very very striking which is why i would say that both um daniels and freeman have a sort of evolution into the john wick universe in which they have transgressed in some manner and are punished in a very similar fashion to the way they were punished um in the wire that being said 
the interconnectedness of the criminal underworld and the police has become so um, permeable and so blurred those distinctions that it doesn't really matter that they were on the side of law enforcement in the wire and now they're part of this criminal underground in John Wick. I don't think that that is really, um, uh, takes anything away from the theory because I, I see those worlds as having evolved into such, um, such one and the same. So now I'm going to talk about a couple other examples of the way the wire has evolved into this near future John Wick universe. And the, the first cue I would say is this idea of the high table, the high table in John Wick, I would argue is the evolution of the new day co-op. And so I'm going to read some pieces here. This is from the John Wick wiki page, um, which I'll link in the show notes, but this is what the John Wick wiki says about the high table. The High Table is a council of high-level crime lords that governs and oversees the underworld's most powerful criminal organizations. The council comprises 12 seats, with each seat often owned by a family. The High Table is considered the ultimate authority of the underworld and is feared and respected by all, including Winston and John Wick himself. They also have dozens of police forces, politicians, and bureaucrats worldwide under their thumbs, making them virtually above the laws. And so I think there's probably not too much explanation required there of the way that um, level of power and level of operation very closely mirrors the way that the New Day co-op operates in the wire with um, some of the connections or uh, informants that they have in other institutions and also the degree to which the the New Day Co-op is, is feared um, by some or at least rules over all of the operations, uh, whether they are drug trade or uh, as we see in, in some of the other seasons, the the reference to human trafficking and so forth. But there's another sort of indication there, and that's the idea of fealty. And we often hear in John Wick this this pledge of fealty. I uh, have served and I will serve, and um, the requirement to pledge one's fealty in order to have the um, approval of the high table. I would say that fealty in this near future universe of John Wick is the evolution of suction. We hear about suction all the time in The Wire. Um, who has suction with the mayor? Who has suction with Valchek? Um, Presbo is still on the force because he has some kind of suction. And suction is kind of a, a funny funny little term for loyalty or being able to pull in favors doesn't sound particularly sophisticated to say someone has suction. But I think the evolution into the universe of John Wick, when we start hearing about fealty, represents an evolution because fealty is much more formalized language. It implies um, more 
uh, more authority from above or, or less um, transactional suction and more absolute uh, subservience in a way. And we see the way that uh, fealty is sort of held over John Wick, held over many of the players in the John Wick universe, actually. Okay, um, the last piece that I want to talk about is how another character, I think, represents an evolution of the wire, and that is the Bowery King. The Bowery King in the John Wick universe, this is played by uh, Lawrence Fishburne, is somewhat of um, an individual, but operates this vast network of um, informants, assassins, and this is all staged within the uh, homeless or, or street living population of New York City. John Wick has to go to the Bowery King to, to ask for some help and, and ask for favors. And the Bowery King says to John Wick, you met me back when I was just a pawn in the game before I became a king. So once again, I would say that that echoes the language of the wire. Um, you know, pawns get capped quick, kings stay the king. But just in the, in the way that I'm saying John Wick is an evolution of the wire to its logical extremes, the Bowery King evolved from pawn to king. So my hypothesis here, and this is kind of the maybe most wild part of my fan theory, is that the Bowery King is the evolution of Marlowe, specifically. And Marlowe, maybe you could argue, was not a pawn back in his days on the wire, but within the grand scale of the criminal underworld, maybe he kind of was a pawn, and especially the way that he was manipulated towards the end of the wire into being in a suit. My argument is that in Marlowe's last scene, we kind of see that he's not meant for the suit and tie life. Um, he wants to be in crime, he wants to be on the street, and he has that confrontation while he's wearing the suit on the street. I would say that that moment being our last scene of Marlowe, let's hypothesize that he rejected suit and tie so completely and so... Um, to its logical extreme, that then he adopts this homeless or, or street-involved persona and uh, down to the level of his, his style of dress. You know, he's dressing in, in homeless fashion or panhandler fashion to completely uh, remove himself from the suit and tie world. And to go even further with that, we see the way that the Bowery King is using homing pigeons um, to deliver messages, to deliver microchips. Uh, we see the Bowery King um, kind of fiddling around with some burner phones. And we see Marlo doing much the same. It's season three, episode six, when we see Marlo at the pigeonry and he's taking care of his birds. He's interested in, in their homing capabilities. And in both cases, like, I would say that 
the purpose of that is to stay off of the networks, off of the internet or the monitored technical communications. And so I think that it's it's worth considering that Marlowe, after leaving the wire, has rejected suit and tie operations of the game, has adopted a vagrancy style of network, run out of the soup kitchen, and cultivated this following of the street-involved people who are his informants, his assassins, in much the same way that he controlled a lot of the street um, in The Wire. I also think it's worth mentioning that uh, the Bowery King was not elected to his position at the high table. I'll read this quote here from, uh, this is from the John Wick wiki again. Unlike Winston, Sophia, and many others who were elected by the high table to their positions, the Bowery King created his own position and offered his services to the high table, allowing him broader access to the criminal network. This has positively affected his status. And that is clearly a um, oh, sort of the same process by which Marlowe was involved in the New Day co-op. He resisted the co-op. The, the other uh, crime lords tried to get him involved, tried to get him to be a cooperator. But because they really were needing Marlowe's participation in much the same way that the high table was able to gain something through the Bowery King's participation. Um, and so I think there's a lot of thematic uh, repetition in that as well. Um, okay, I'm going to stop there because that is a lot of information um, to take on. And I'm so keen to hear what other people think about this fan theory. Um, so just to sort of sum up again, my fan theory is that the John Wick franchise exists in a near future continuation of the Wire universe in which the themes, rules, and parameters of the Wire are taken to their most logical extremes. So that would be around the idea of um, corruption and indistinction in, in institutions that run our, our cities and our countries, around the idea of gaming and uh, transactional operations and being a, a player either approved to participate or not. The idea of false frontage and um, subterranean or, or hidden dealings. And then a lot of um, visual cues and dialogue repetitions. All of that plus what I am arguing are three returning characters. So Marlowe as the Bowery King, Daniels as Caron at the Continental, and then Freeman as Harry uh, also at the Continental. I can't wait to talk about more of this and happy to do a second part to this, uh, this episode if there's enough sort of interest in this topic and, and people want to hear more. As always, you can tweet us at Rewired Podcast. You can email us, podcast.rewired at gmail.com. 
and really looking forward to hearing from everyone on this topic. And we'll see you next time, way down in the hole.